Keeping it real on cliffcentral.com. Oh, yeah, we don't need another hero. That is, I couldn't resist it. I couldn't resist it. It's 30 years old, but it's still so awesome. Tina Turner, Mad Max 3. Um, it's eight minutes past 12. I'm Pumima Shekho, and you're listening to Wumandla. And we're definitely talking about no more heroes today. We're talking about movies. I've got the gorgeous afro fiend in the I, studio with me. You think I'm gorgeous? <laughs> Really? Yeah, we think you're gorgeous. Thanks for having me Thanks on Wumandla. We're talking women in film. Yes. And more importantly, Mad Max, we're going to start with it mm-hmm. because it opened on cinemas last week. Mm-hmm. And already it's and like... And it premiered at Cannes as well. And already it's like 45 million US dollars around the world. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. And then there's also all the controversy. <laughs> Are we still claiming mm. Shalise as our own? Uh, our own she Shalise? claims us. Okay, so we're going to claim him. Our very own Shalise is... The Bopi van Benoni. Very much the lead in this particular yes. film. And even though the movie is named after a man, Mad Max, <laughs> she's the hero. She's the Maxine <laughs> in the Max. <laughs> She's, you know, Charlize is, is is very interesting because she's managed to cross so many boundaries and then um, her words aren't empty. Like she actually stands behind what she believes when she says this is this is what the story is about, um, is intent on always being the lead and a powerful character um, and not just being cast as a pretty bird like she used to be when she was starting out. Now that she can choose her roles, she chooses very carefully. And um, I think Mad Max was a perfect, perfect choice for her. And I mean, she's not afraid of not being pretty in At the movie. All. She's an amputee in this film. At all. With like a bionic arm. which A is superhero, also quite cool, basically. <laughs> which is also quite cool. But um, for those of you who don't know about the, the controversy, first let's talk about the, the directing. I, when I was reading up on this film, and I, I must say, I haven't seen it, but the idea that it took around 15 years from when the idea was conceptualized that they're making another one, because the last one was in 1985. That is so common. I think people would be surprised about how long it takes to make a film. Um, and later we'll be talking about Frozen. And uh, the director, Jennifer Lee, talks about how um, it's a baby, basically. And it takes forever to birth a film if you want it to be as epic as Mad Max is. Um, they had a lot of, I mean, it was um, jinxed. You know, films get jinxed where the leads, the leads die. I mean, that's yes, crazy. Because Heath, Heath Ledger, Ledger was on, he was actually the second actor that they were going to have as the lead, um, of, uh, I think the, the, um, lead actor that plays opposite Charlize. They were looking for that character. And you know what's also surprising about this entire conversation and us reading about the history of how this final Mad Max film came about is that they don't talk about the female lead even in their search. Although the film is obviously about her. When they talk about what was stopping the film several times, the first one, the, one of the things was they couldn't find their male lead. So that's ironic. <laughs> I mean, they, but of, one of the things that when we were getting ready and it's, 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 it's insane and it's incredible. The film's been out for a week and already there's like millions and millions and millions of like inputs on the internet, men hating this film. They're like trolling it left, right and center. Um, but one of the things that I, I, I read about it in the Chicago Tribune, uh, was 
anybody who's seen the original three Mad Max film movies knows that women exist for one of four man-created reasons. One, to be raped so Mel Gibson can get mad. Two, to be a sexual partner with a guy trying to kill Mel Gibson. Three, to be murdered so Mel Gibson can get mad. Mm. And four, to force Mel Gibson to fight in the Thunderdome. Mm. Um, and they have characters like Nurse, Knight Rider's Girl, The Captain's Girl, and mm. Victim. That's they what don't even the have names. Been they don't even have names. Yeah. You know what's ironic? When we first wrote um, our TV series Society, I insisted on not giving them main names. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to give them names because I don't want to spend too much time investing and building their characters because I want the series to be about the women. And that when they read the script, people are very clear about what it is this series is about. And so, but then my script editors, and they were male, were so upset that I didn't give the males like names. So I had to, I just had the man, so I had to call him Manza the man and like created all these like name but it was that was my you know and I'm sure whether the initial writer screenwriter was aware that that he was that's what he was doing by not giving the female characters names he was to a certain extent erasing them whereas I did it consciously he may have done it unconsciously which is what you know gender uh, inequality where it stems from so one of the people that were consulted yeah. in writing this new Mad Max is, um, what's her name from the Vagina Monologues? Eve Ensler. Eve Ensler from the Vagina Monologues was consulted extensively in the creation of this particular film. Do you know how that word scares people, vagina? Like it just frightens people to no end. And it is impossible. It's almost like it creates a wall. And then it is reason why we shouldn't even continue the conversation simply because the word vagina is there. But that's what's amazing about Eve. I mean, she has a ton of like, um, TED talks where she talk, and, and what's lovely about TED is that they have shown her, her, the trajectory of her career and how far she's come. But her, um, conversation about women and their representation and, um, gender inequality and, you know, the, uh, violence against women, including children is a conversation that she has refused to stop talking about, you know, or, or in, in, in insisting that people engage on. And I think that how for, um, for progressive it was of them to bring her on and that she be part of this, mm. you know, and, so one of the, the things that comes up over and over and over again in the, the diatribe of yeah. hate mail for this <laughs> is how, you know, it feels like it's emasculating the men. Yeah. Like it, it, it seems to be quite a thing for a lot of the guys that were, were reading this and just saying that they can't believe that Charlize Theron has so much dialogue in this film that there's actually, and spoiler alert guys, there is actually a scene where she saves Tom Hardy's character, the Mad Max character. Yeah. Um, and Brez just sent a thing saying that he really liked Tom Hardy, that they chose him because yeah. he was Bane uh, Ma- in Batman. And Tom, Brad, if you could just send us a message and let me know if you've seen the film, what you thought about the film. The, um, the, yes, we should mention that, that Mad Max is actually on, at the cinemas right now. It opened on the 15th, the same day that it launched, um, at Cannes. Okay. So the idea that a film can emasculate a person, um, gives the film way more, um, power than I, I think, um, it has. The, the people that are saying these things, they subscribe to the idea that there's a chick flick. And that it's for, for, uh, women and that they are action flicks and that those are for men. The idea that women could possibly enjoy an action filled film 
or that even men, because the thing about people that um, insist on these traditional gender roles don't allow men as well to find or express themselves in a way that may be considered feminine. Do you understand? What? They wouldn't, they're not given permission to perhaps like a chick flick. Even if they were probably crying at the end, do you know what I mean? So the, it's just too much power to to the film. It's it's as if it dictates to you how life should be. Um, the other thing about this kind of rhetoric, um, it's gained a lot of momentum. And what was what has happened consequently is that women have started proclaiming that they are not feminists. There's been a I am not a feminist movement. In fact, people like Erica Badu have even said that yeah. where they're like, rather than admit to being somebody who is woman centric in their values. Um, and I suppose it's because of the shame and being afraid of being ostracized by the male their male counterparts, they would much rather say I'm not a feminist. What's unfortunate is that the very freedoms that they exercise today are based on those extremist feminists from like 1964, you know? So it's, it's, Unfortunate. And I don't know if some of those people, is it a tongue in cheek? Are they joking? No. <laughs> some have to be joking. So there's a guy that, that runs a website that's called Return of Kings and it's, it's a very popular yeah. website and he distinctly says, I mean, he, he actually wrote on his blog, this is the vehicle by which they are guaranteed to force a lecture of feminism down your throat. This is the Trojan horse feminists and Hollywood's leftists will use to vainly insist on the trope women are equal to men in all things, including physique, strength, and logic. And this is the subterfuge they will use to blur the lines between masculinity and femininity, furthering, men, further ruining women for men and men for women. <laughs> then that's where he, he, he then trumps his big call to action. Don't go and see the film. Yeah. And he says it's feminist propaganda. I'm, I, I think it's shocking that in this day and age, it is, it's like shocking that people can speak that way. Like, I mean, he's, he's being overtly sexist, basically, <laughs> in the name of freedom of speech. So that's, for me, that kind of rhetoric is, is, is scary. You know, this, I, I don't know what to say to something like that. Um, but people like that are, are, I guess that's the thing about the internet. You have a voice, you have a platform and you, you should be able to speak. But it's, uh, man, the guy, his poor wife, hey, and his daughters. <laughs> just his life. Let's just pray. Life. But I think, you know, there, there's also, look, lots of really great reviews that have come out and one that I really enjoyed, um, Scott Mendelson in Forbes magazine, just talking about what can be learned. From, from Mad Max and from the success of Mad Max as well. And, and what he writes about, you know, is that the benefit of having, that there's a lot of girl characters in the film and it's not just Shalise, even though she's the, the main hero and, and that it's not just, you know, one token pretty girl in an all boy cast, as it says, is that each re respective female character does not represent the entire gender over the course of the narrative, you know, so there are girls that are, Lovely, there are girls that are feisty, there are girls, everybody's got their own role to play. And so, because there's so many girls to pick from, you then don't have, I mean, what we saw in the Avengers. What's her name? Uh, um, Scarlett Johansson? Yeah. Is that her? yeah. Um, Black Widow, Black <clears throat> Widow's character, where she has to fall in love with the Hulk, and then she has to, you know, get a forced sterilization, and she, yeah. because she has to have every experience that the female Gender actually experiences. It's. I. I think it's about what he is maybe referring to is breaking down the idea that, like Shirley's Tehran says, Tehran. Did I just say it? Tehran. 
Did I say it like Theron. the Americans? Theron. Um, I don't know how you say it like the Benonians either. Theron. 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 Oh, Theron. Um, that you could either be a whore or a mother. So the Mother Mary or Jezebel tropes in film that have existed for years. I mean, the hardest thing about film school is watching films from the 1960s and seeing those tropes. The um, the virgin Mother Mary is always a young woman who With perky yes, breasts. the perky breast that the lead is trying to get a hold of and the the trope of the Jezebel is an old um, resentful bitter woman. You know, those are the only stories. And in the movies from the 60s and 70s, they get slapped around. And so you're sitting there in class trying to see the, you know, Sidney Lumet's like, oh, my God, he's amazing. Or you're, you're like, Elia Kazan, you're like, oh, great director. But you're like, damn, you're sexist, you know. And so what they're bringing now is complex uh, women characters, which has always been... um I suppose, unpacked in Hollywood films. It's always been about the male and unpacking how complex he is. But now you get to, you get to unpack complex women roles. And I think the difference will come as well when, um, Hollywood is brave enough to make a blockbuster and invest this amount of money into a, a movie and just blatantly make it about a female hero. Complex. You love her, you hate her. The last time we saw something similar to that was in Terminator. Terminator 2. First Terminator. Which they hate. They also hate. I mean, How can they love <laughs> Linda Hunt? I mean, that's one of my favorite all-time films. And then what's beautiful about that, right, is she's able to, because her lead, the guy who's supposed to be um, helping her, dies, right, halfway through. She has to save herself. At the end, she saves herself. She saves the baby inside her. And not only is she she's so brave that the last scene of the movie, she's pregnant Driving off into the desert by herself. Who does that? You know? <laughs> and again, you're talking about how long those films took. Um, James Cameron, it took him 10 years to make Terminator 1. Mm. 10 years. And when you watch it, you're like, yes, I get it. He thought of every single little thing, you know? Mm. So it's not unusual that films take that long. Sometimes it's because they're taking their time and they're not getting funding. Sometimes uh, it's because it's jinxed. Dallas Bias Clubs took took like 10 years. Yeah. The guy who was, um, the film was based on died before he could see the film come to life. Sure. So yeah, Jezebel, Mother Mary, those those are the tropes. And now we're seeing characters that sit in the middle and say, yeah, I like sex or what? <laughs> so now we've got... Talking about Cannes, the film Mad Max premiered at Cannes, but Cannes uh, Film Festival is also ongoing and ends on the 24th. It ends on the 24th. It's been ongoing since the 13th, I Mm -hmm. think it opened. Yeah. Huge film festival. And most of the time, the only thing that we ever hear about is the red carpet. Is the red carpet. (laughs) It's always who was wearing what on the red carpet at this premiere, at that premiere. And I think... As of two days ago, the red carpet has become a bit of a, a, a contentious issue with a lot of, um, even up to about early this morning, mm-hmm. you know, there were still lots of talk about heels on the red heels carpet. Heels versus flats. Heels versus flats. The story. I isn't that, gathered. isn't that the woman's dilemma though? <laughs> Pumi, how, how often have you said, just had to call a friend before leaving, like, um, should I wear heels or should I wear flats? Or you call to say, are you wearing heels? Because that, that is like a, a, when you wear heels, you're, I don't know, stepping up the game, I guess, so to speak. But now the, the question is, can you step up the game and not have to wear heels? 
Throne. 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 Like like T R O N. Throne. Throne. Like a short O, right? It is also a French. <laughs> it's a French. Throne is French. <laughs> Unless I'm wrong. It's Throne. Thanks, Brad. <laughs> Thanks, Bradley. <laughs> Who hasn't seen the film, but I really hope you go and see it. And I'd li- really like to hear what you think about it. Um, I'm child-free this weekend, so I'll be seeing the film this weekend. Okay. Um, but the heels thing, I've now gotten to the bottom of it. You know, because you only hear the snippets and you only mm. see the Twitterati, mm. like, freaking out mm. about who's been lit on. Thank God for the Twitteratis. <laughs> what would we do without those guys? So, a Apparently, what happened mm-hmm. was it was a, a screening and a bunch of women over 50. Yeah. So they're not even young, you know, they're over 50 and they were wearing flats like sensible women in mm-hmm. their 50s do. They wear sensible shoes to these things. And the fashion police stopped them. Yeah. And since then, a whole lot of other reports have then come out, mm. um, including one about a producer, a film producer, who actually has part of her left foot amputated. And, and she was in flats and she was stopped a couple mm. of times. So I mean, she had to, after a while in negotiating with the people and realizing, well, her film is showing, did they allow her on the red carpet? Isn't it, isn't that ridiculous? It sort of speaks to like when uh, women, although us Africans, I guess we were always free about our bodies, but <laughs> the poor Victorian women had to wear corsets and, and uh, the bubble and all sorts of crazy little things. I don't know. For, for the, for whose gaze, whose eye, who are we trying to please exactly as we prance about so, in heels? And, and I think on that note, it's good to have, uh, our own eye on the ground. Mm-hmm. We've got a big South African contingent out in Cannes. We do. And we have a very dear friend who's on the line, has been waiting patiently while we rant about Mad Max. And she's on the line to chat with us about, about um, being at Cannes. L- Lodi, you introduce her because you are her like best friend. Um, well, this is my business partner as well. And she's out in Cannes representing. Um, what people don't know about film festivals is actually it's a job. And when you go to film festivals as a producer or a filmmaker, sometimes you, you don't even get to watch any films because that's not what it's about. And films like, um, the film festivals like Cannes is that it has a film market, which is where deals are meant to be happening, you know? Although sometimes the, um, fashion and the red carpet and those kind of things take center stage. But Mahano, is an after-trained uh, graduating actress who has graced our screens, um, big screens, and our small little TV sets for the past close to 20 years. And Sorry. stage. And the stage, yes. She had a one-woman show called Miss Cocker, which toured the country, um, was at the um, Grahamstown Film Festival. She did a run as one-hander at the Market Theater. She is a writer, has written for several drama series. She's multi-talented in that she directs as well. And she's a producer. And I think in Cannes, she's wearing her producer's hat. <laughs> Mahano. Hello. I could hear you just fine until you introduced me. <laughs> yeah, right. Are you wearing heels? Oh, no. I'm wearing Crocs, honey. The walking in Europe is not a joke. It's not a myth. This is real. <laughs> My feet hurt. <laughs> so tell us if... Can my first question, and it's a very vain question, is is Can as star studded as we see it on E Entertainment? Like, have you bumped into George and Amal Clooney yet? 
Yes and no. Can is yes. You bumped into George Clooney. Yes, you bumped into George Clooney, or no, you did not. No, I did not bump into George Clooney. But yes, it is extremely star-studded. It is crazy. Like you keep thinking, oh, those people are inaccessible, but you can literally see them everywhere. They are screens all over Cannes, showing you what is happening on the red carpet. But not just that. The red carpet is right on the street for you to see it. It's like uh, an arm length away. The red carpet flows right onto the street. And the stars are walking up on the hour every hour. And there are hordes of people that are lining up the street. You literally have to figure out like your own back route to avoid the hordes of people that are just lining up to get their own personal photo. Because literally, if you just sit there, you could take your own selfie and pretend you were hanging out with George Clooney. <laughs> but so you are there today, uh, this week, uh, this past two weeks, actually, mm-hmm. this weekend last. You're there as a producer. Yes, I to be here all the two, both the two weeks. What? And it must be nice. You're there as a producer selling your ways. And how has that been for you? It is an interesting experience. The thing about Can is it is completely large. It is it is everybody from like a low budget Zanzi Magic film to Mad Max. So everybody, anyone and everyone has got the chance to literally meet whoever you need and make that deal. Although everybody says the deals only really happen after time, Mm. it is possible for it to happen. So beyond Hollywood, it's really where dreams really do come true or the hope of the dream does come true. um, how, How big is the South African delegation there right now? So far, I've heard it is plus 100 people. I meet a new South African every day. (laughs) And you've been in this industry for 20 years. Yeah, (laughs) and I meet new people. You know, the joy of it is we're not just meeting um, filmmakers from Joburg anymore. There are people from Durban, Limpopo, everywhere. Everyone is allowing themselves to dream and believing that they too can have that chance. It is quite infectious. So what were what were your expectations? Uh, this is your second time at Cannes. What did you learn from the first visit? And uh, that you're from, not doing this time now, around. Yeah. Other than the fact that ish, rante will. And it was more and more ish each year. Ish. Um, the thing I learned from the first con is never come back without a plan, because it is so big you can swim in it and it is extremely overwhelming and you can come back extremely deflated and um, disheartened. Mm. So coming back this time, it was, okay, game plan on what are we selling, what is your plan, and who do you need to talk to? And there are a whole lot of programs here at Cannes geared towards um, making this experience profitable, for lack of a better term, for the young producer. And young, I mean somebody stepping into the industry properly and not just as an observer or... And what so about? I'm, uh, say that again. And what about the rest of Africa? So, so the NFVF have have obviously made quite a big, um, a big decision, strategic decision to take a big number of filmmakers down there. What about the rest of Africa? How how well represented is that? I know there's an Ethiopian film, Ethiopian, I think, in the main selection, first time yes. ever. Yeah. 
Yes. The rest of Africa is really not here. You can still, like, if you wanted to play Stop the African, you really could win. Um, there are not a lot of us. The bulk of us that you're seeing here is us South Africans. Nigeria doesn't have a stand this year, and I actually bumped, I bumped into a Nigerian filmmaker I had met before two years ago, and I was asking her, um, why isn't there a Nigeria stand? And she frankly said, it's an election year, so the, the priorities are out there. Yeah. Hmm. So, film is a luxury that South Africa can at least consistently make a priority. Hmm. The other African countries have got bread and butter issues. Mm. And we, we, I was looking at all the films, and and I understand that the NVF have a dedicated stand, a dedicated pavilion, and th- and that they'll be screening a whole lot of South African films. Mm. And I, I was reading about um, what's that film with the kids? And uh, Mahanoz Nexi Youth. She's actually part of the NVF delegation, and is, was that's how uh, we managed to get to um, get Cannes. a ticket. That's cool. Yes. So, but it wasn't just that. Were you not part of a producer's uh, workshop and program happening there as well? So the NSBF has got affiliations with different programs around the world. And the program that has brought me to Cannes is um, a program called Film Access Market. And what they do, it's a Canadian company, and what they do is go to um, different countries around the world and offer their producers from their national funds to have an experience at Cannes that is directly focused at giving the, the producer an experience that is profitable for your time at a festival. So they do Cannes, they do Berlin, they do TIFF, and I think two, two others. Um, it's, a very, it's a valuable experience. I mean, the NFVS has brought people doing various things. I happen to be doing this one. And what the film access market um, affords is a ticket to have um, access to the producer's market, which is a space that has several workshops over the the time in Cannes. You get to meet distributors, sales agents, producers, and you're having a one-to-one experience, unlike everybody else who's just like, I feel like Cannes is a glorified, like, brie market. Everyone's like, (laughs) (laughs) It's a wonderful program and there are various other programs. There's also the Producers Network where once you have actually produced a feature film, Can has got like a database of all the filmmakers that have ever tried their luck in Can. So you can say, I've now produced my own feature film. Can you now introduce me to people at my level? Mm. So those people are up and about really meeting George Clooney's producer and having real conversations. It's so not a lie. I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your red carpet experience because I know that you were given very clear instructions about how seriously you should take um, the dress code for the red carpet. And I'm sure you've heard about the um, little bruja, um regarding flat shoes, Miss Croc wearing yes. flat shoes versus you heels. wear Crocs. <laughs> um, and yet, well, that is judgment in my voice. There is, um, there is a system here. When you arrive at time, you get your access code, and you can now start um, uh, applying to make it on the red carpet. So far, I've attended one red carpet, and I've got tickets for two other red carpets. The, there's a discrepancy. After the morning and afternoon red carpets, 
you can go pretty casual. Like, you still have to be dressed up more um, uh, like a cocktail uh, formal. The red carpet that happened after 6 o'clock going into midnight, that's where the stars come, and that's where you could be spotted on any Hollywood reporter, and they expect you to look the part. Um, and this is where the prejudice comes in. The afternoons are fine. It's the evenings that become a problem where, myself included, I've got a late-night red carpet, and I did not bring shoes, and I'm starting to freak out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's making headline news all over the world. It's a real thing. Do something. So what what film, which red carpet did you attend, and what are the next two? Okay, I attended the red carpet for Sea of Trees, Galston Sun's Tree of Sea of Trees, which Ooh. got horrible reviews. <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, they like, yeah, tore they it went, up. Apparently, the first screening it got full on blue. Yeah, yeah, like really. Mm. And as sophisticated as, as it is, the audience's experience of it might as well be at like um, Carlton Centre. <laughs> Which and is fantastic. You know, that's how, how, how we think we're British, but really, we're French. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And what else so are you going to see? The carpet I'm going to is Love. Which and is? And I'm going there tonight. It's a midnight screening. And I'm like, doesn't midnight count as like morning? Do I still have to wear you? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, who's the director for Love? Gaspar Noe, I don't know how to pronounce his name, just call her. N-O with a copy on the E. Oh, yeah, we were just having a throne thing here. Oh, okay, throne. Um, uh, throne. I was uh, listening to you guys. The answer is throne. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the last one that you're going to? Ni Yin Yang. Is it? By Ho Kif Yang Is that a real thing? Is that a Chinese film? Yes, it is. Okay. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds interesting. It's actually for me uh, um, a 10 o'clock show. But, you know, I'm one of those people who are like, oh, stars are just people. Oh, you know, this is all fake. It's all fabricated by the media. The red carpet is quite amazing. Like, I was taken in by it. It is the largest red carpet in the whole wide world. It stays on for the whole festival. They never roll it off. They roll it on the first day of the festival, and they unroll it the last day of the festival. So the allure of it is always there. And when you step on it, you really do feel privileged. As unaffected as I thought I was, I was like, I don't care what they say. I am taking a selfie. <laughs> well done. I wanted, speaking of those selfies, what's your... um? Twitter handle and what's your uh, what's your Twitter handle and what's your Instagram? Because I want to see those selfies. Yes. Before I let you go, <laughs> my Twitter handle is Miss Kwakwa. M I double S K W A K W A. But I left Twitter a long time ago. I can't follow everybody and their friends. <laughs> um, okay, Miss Kwakwa. I am where I am actually active is Instagram and. My handle is Khanui, which is K-G-A-N-W-I. K-G-A-N-W-I. And, you know, I feel like the world is oversaturated with red carpet photos. 
If you're going to follow me on Instagram, you're going to get my experience of it. The French Riviera is a dream. Oh, oh any a- yacht parties this year? We haven't heard. I went to my yacht party. Woo-hoo! It was everything I expected it to be. Oh, my God. People party hard. <laughs> party hard. And the champagne is flowing like we are in France. It's a real thing. Yes, like oh like God. Winston Churchill said. <laughs> <laughs> we're there it's for the not champagne. France. We're fighting for its champagne. Okay. Exactly. And I'm having that and a whole lot. Well, um, the South Africa party, going back to the NSDS, the South Africa party is the best party in Cannes, and that is not a lie. Sounds like South Africans. Anybody, wants to get into the South Africa party. We had it over this weekend. They invited Leroy to come through, and I think DJ Waxy. It was a really hot party, really, really hot party. People were, like, begging to get in. Wow. Wonderful. I think I think what's great what the NVF has managed to done quickly is that they've balanced that perception that the, all they do is throw parties with the actual work of bringing people over and helping them get their films sold overseas. So for all this perception this that it's just party, really party, party. You walk into the South Africa stand where the NSBS is stationed mm-hmm. and you have a meeting registry. If you need to meet someone, you can sit there and book a meeting room. Everybody yes. has made South Africa their point to come and connect to the whole world. So if you are an international producer wanting to produce content from Africa, Mm. you come to the South Africa stand and they will then direct you everywhere else. The rest of the Africans that are feeling lost without their own home base come to South Africa and everybody is accommodating of them. Mm. So it's I think that's so um, beautiful to hear. That's beautiful to hear. At least in Cannes. Yeah, in the wake. Yeah, in the wake (laughs) of all the xenophobia. But, um, yeah, so big up to the NVF. Thank you so much. At Hanui on Instagram. Thank you for chatting with us. I'm going to let you go have a nap to get ready for that 10 o'clock screening, ma'am. Yes, I do. Thanks for having me on your show, ladies. Shut up. I'll be back. The snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. A kingdom of isolation, and it looks like I'm the queen. The wind is howling like this swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in, heaven knows I tried. Keeping it real on cliffcentral.com. Yep, that was if you if you have Disney playing ever in your house, if you have a little girl, <laughs> you have seen this film, you have heard this song countless times, and I would beg to even say that you've probably been singing along and making the action. It's sort of like a Beyonce song. You know, you don't have to have the Beyonce album to know every single song. And this is it, baby. This is the soundtrack from the feature film Frozen. We're talking about the change in stereotyping in films in Hollywood and this in Disney. So Frozen in March 2014 became like the top grossing animated film of all All time. time. Ever. 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 53 films in. It's the 53rd Disney feature film. And the first time that they had a female director. Yeah. And it's like... It's it's broken. It's 
it's it's fantastic because then it's it's great that it had a woman direct at the helm to demonstrate that not only can she match her male counterparts, she can exceed whatever standards they had set. You know, I also think it spoke to how people were just dying for a film like that. They were just dying for the little girls that watch a lot of these romantic fairy tale films. They were dying for a story where they are the heroes. Where they don't get saved. And that's why I love the song at the beginning. Like, I love the Tina Turner so much because, like, we don't need another hero. The heroes in ourselves, you know. So this was one of those films where the sisterly love is the thing, the, the act of love's what true love's act yeah. that yes. overpowers all. And and that true love is not a romantic love. That's one of the things the film was like it just completely broke down. That love does not exist solely in the idea of a romantic kind of love. That there's sisterly love, there's unconditional love, there's friendship, there's familial, there's all types of love. And this film touches on all of them, and, every single one of them. And Olaf. And Olaf. <laughs> and his love for summer. He has his own flurries. <laughs> his love for summer. But I think, you know, so I have a seven-year-old, as everybody knows, so I watch lots of animated films. And and the thing for me that's always so clever about animated films is how they keep the adult engaged. So they're like two stories. There's a yeah. story for the the guys. The, yeah. that it's, the story that it's actually made, yeah. the people that it's made for. Yeah. And those kids are brutal. When when a film sucks, mm. they'll be like, in those first 10 minutes, they're, they're switching out. off and yeah. they're out of there. But but to keep the kids and the adults like involved, and I totally love the story mm. of when Anna was falling in love with this prince, mm. whatever, and then it turns out he's such a dickhead. I saw it coming, hey? <laughs> So it can read the I signs. Totally did not see it my coming. my my radar when it comes to BSing is like it's working overtime. You may need to do a skills transfer because I don't know how to spot that bullshit. <laughs> but um, yeah, she. The, I love. There was a moment in the film where the um the reindeer <laughs> is showing off the new cart, but he does it in the way that they have those show car girls. And I was like, yeah, the kids completely missed that, but I didn't. And I was in stitches because <laughs> he saunters over to the car and caresses the car with his hoof, which, yeah, that is, I mean, I don't know how to begin to write stories that are that layered because that's them paying a lot of attention to. We have to make sure that the parents are there because they're chaperoning the kids and that they're entertained. And the kids are also getting the very basic storyline about love, friendship, theme, death, which is one of the um the, the themes in the film. I know. It yeah. broke my heart when those parents died. It really did. It did. And it was, it was so dramatic that wave just swallowed them, like <laughs> swallowed them. <laughs> but, but also, I think that the thing that, and I put this on Instagram earlier, just getting ready for the show. Interesting that, uh, for Jennifer Lee, the one question she gets asked all the time, and I saw this amazing, um, article that she wrote mm. in the Washington Post, I think it was. No, no, Los Angeles, in Los Angeles Post about how irritating it is that everybody keeps asking her about being a female director. Yeah. It's, you know, you know, what was lovely about uh, Jennifer was she 
was working and was uh, was unaware that she would be the first female director, as in she was just on her own path, not out to be the first female director, but to be the best director that she could be. Um, and she even said that it's maybe this would have been fantastic and exceptional if it had happened in 1964. The fact that it's happening now is surprising. Nobody was aware, aware of it, and it just happened, um, I guess, organically, unfortunately. Um, Jennifer... Uh, is exceptional in many ways. You know, she's just, she, her trajectory and her skill set is amazing when you break it down. It makes sense that she should be helming a film. Had she been male, she probably would have been there like 10 years earlier. So she's, she writes, she wrote the story. She writes. She's a cartoonist. She's a cartoonist. She's an animator. She also does special effects and, um, uh, props. She she does it all, and she's worked her way up the ladder. She didn't land on this job because she was seen as a token to try and make her the exception, you know. Which is not to say that people with that that happens to are not skilled enough, but she it happened organically. She wasn't chosen. She just happened to be the right person for the job, which is what I think most women want. In any anybody who's a minority in any industry would like to be chosen because they're good at the job, not because they're filling a quota. And it's unfortunate though, but those quotas need to be filled, yeah. For me, the other thing that, that stands out, and I mean, this film has won two Academy Awards, uh, Best Animated Feature, Best Original Song, the song we just played, Let It Go. Mm-hmm. It's won Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature. It's won a BAFTA for Best Animated Feature, Annie Awards, Best Animated Feature, Best Compilation Soundtrack for Visual Media, Best Song Written for Visual Media, Critics' Choice Awards. I mean, it's just Best Original Song, every kind of right award. Essentially yeah. is what it's winning. And, and when I was looking at it and, you know, they, they say here, they mention, uh, Toy Story 3, but when adjusted for inflation with all the Disney films of all time, mm. right? Even when it's, when the price, the ticket prices, the number of cinemas are taken into account, even with all those adjustments, she's just towered ahead in front of every other opportunity that there has been. And I, I think for me, the two things that kind of stood out a lot is a when you tell stories that resonate with worldwide the mm-hmm. larger part of the population mm-hmm. you're going to get financially rewarded or whoever's buying the tickets and she says in one of her articles that there's a perception that the movie going public is ma- mainly made up of males and they are the ones that have the power and this film proved a hundred times over that that is not the case That is not the case. Not only is it not the case, there's a dearth. Like people are hungry for a film such as um, Frozen. Um, One of the things that was really nice to hear about the process of, she was the writer for Record Ralph. By the way, so Which she's I a love. writer. Good. Oh, okay, no. the mom in the studio. I think I need to watch that movie. Jeez, listen, I watch films. I watch animation films too. Not anime, proper like no. animated films. Anyway, so she um, she says one of the things that drove the film was the passion. And, of course, who she is was brought to the fore. And the passion, she says, is because um, I think it's the CEO or um, the creative director of Disney, John Lasseter, insists that people do projects that they are passionate about because that w- because they're going to be with the project for 
two to three to four years working on it. And so they need to be passionate about it. He allows them the freedom to come up with a story that they love, that they can then push or ride that story out for several years. And that this was her passion and it just happened to be the right story at the right time. We were talking, uh, I mean, a couple of years ago. So Disney is doing very well now. Um, they fought Pixar and, and a couple of years ago, I mean, it was quite a big thing that they, they've got a real girl problem at Pixar, whose biggest grossing film is Cars mm-hmm. one and two. Um, and whose stories are all kind of geared towards the yeah, boys. Yeah, and Disney for the longest, longest time has always been about the helpless princess yeah. in need of rescuing. And so, the 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 entire industry was kind of collapsing mm. under its own weight yeah. as it were and just watching this film i remember when i first watched the film which was i don't even remember when i suppose in 2013 when it first came out mm. is sitting there with my son mm. going hmm okay where's this going where's this going mm. and feeling like i'm sure he doesn't get this i'm yeah. sure he doesn't get what this film's about but he was he there because for me it it was so visceral, yeah. what the film was always about. And I suppose the little girl inside of me as well. Yeah. And then, and this is how you know, right? Is when he asks for it again. No? Then you know. Then you know, rah, it worked. When he asked for it again. And there was a time when he'd be, I'd be sleeping and he wakes up at four, at like six in the morning at ungodly hours, children wake up. And he'd like jump on me and, and do that thing that, that little Anna does to Elsa. It says, the Guy is awake, so I'm, I'm awake. awake. We've got to play. When I, when he did that, I then thought, uh, you know that what? That is a fantastic line, though. <laughs> it's a great dialogue. Not at six in the morning. No, uh, I've, I, I'm uh, just I saying. I can only imagine. I promise you, Brad, I'm going to watch it. But so right after this. One, one of the amazing things is it changed my own perception about female heroes in films or animations. You know, because... You think that I would like to think that I'm progressive and a feminist in very many ways, but I myself have been, I guess, brainwashed by the idea that a woman or a, say a princess can't save herself. So for instance, when they're having the action shots and they have the big, um, snowy monster coming after them and they're rolling down cliffs and everything, I was questioning, how is it that she knows how to like, Tie ropes and even help the guy. And I was like, where does she get a knife from? Like little things like that. And I was like, had it been the male character, I wouldn't have ever questioned it. And yet I'm questioning this female character. And that begins to change your idea of how women are, um, portrayed on film, whether it's cartoons or, or real life characters. And that is fantastic. That when, when film begins to change your mind, even you as a progressive person, <laughs> who preaches <laughs> feminism and then you change your mind like that is very very powerful and so when people like those guys deriding Mad Max are speaking as loudly the films need to continue to speak to the power that young girls can have and older women who think they're progressive can have as well it's a, it's really it's really powerful it really was a thing. I absolutely enjoyed both films. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it. Get it on DVD. Even if you, you will love it. Even if you're not with and the, the sisterhood part, the sisterhood part, having sisters and knowing that bond. That yes, um, it's sort of like uh, Solange beating up Jay Z for her sister. <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of modern day ghetto version. <laughs> would be that what happened in the elevator. <laughs>
<laughs> so this is the animated version of yes. what happened at the elevator. Yeah. That is and exactly, kid friendly. It's kid friendly. It's exactly the way I would have put it too. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming through. We're talking about women in film. We're talking about the role that women play in film. And we're talking about the biggest, the hugest movies today. Yeah. Mad Max, um, Fury Road, it's mm-hmm. called. It's on screens now. You can go and see it. Please see it and let me know what you thought of it. Because yes. um, I am a Mad Max fan. Yes. The first film came out in the year I was born. <laughs> and I know. still I'm a Mad Max fan. So I can't wait to see this yes. one. I am a Frozen fan through and through. I am a Let It Go fan. I am a Olaf I'm, in the I'm wonderful a new days of summer. Disciple. <laughs> in the wonderful days of summer. But you've been listening to Pumima Shekho and Atsinifi. Afro-Cinefiend And we're talking about movies And thank you for joining us It Like looking out the window I see lots of colorful clothes So the fashionistas must be here Coming up next are the fashionistas And you've been on Woman Love Cliffcentral.com